Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to episode number 87. Today we spoke to Brent Menzoir, critically acclaimed author, motivational speaker, award-winning musician and podcast host of Thoughts That Rock. Brandt is a transformational keynote speaker with a difference. A former rock star, he now edutrains everyone on purpose and values. He has created a movement called Black Sheep, where Brandt helps you identify your non-negotiable four to five core values. We had a great conversation about values, high performance, and legacy. We talked about how Brandt pivoted during the pandemic and how he handles adversity and setbacks. His new book called Black Sheep, Unleash the Extraordinary, Awe-Inspiring, Undiscovered You has just been published. Find out more about Brandt at www.brandtmanswar.com and also findyourblacksheep.com. Thanks very much for joining us on our show, Brandt. Hi, Brandt. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? Uh, doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. Brandt, tell the listeners a little bit about where your base is at the moment. Where are we speaking to from? I'm calling you from Cocoa Beach, Florida, which is on the Atlantic side, about uh, 45 minutes southeast of Orlando. Very nice. And is that your that's your home? Is that where you're from? Yes. Yeah. Well, with the, the pandemic here, it's pretty much the only place I've been since March. <laughs> well, Florida is probably not the worst place you could be, right? The weather's probably been okay. Yeah, the weather's been okay. Uh, you know, we have two seasons in Florida and that's hot and hotter and so we are <laughs> we are in the hotter season right now <laughs> yeah uh, we both struggle there i think we'd be slapping on spf 50 nonstop. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes so look let's get serious brent i mean you're you do a lot of really cool things what what's it been like for you since march over the last kind of six months period what's that whole journey been like for you it's been a, a crazy ride, a roller coaster of epic proportions. Uh, you know, I spend the majority of my time the last four or five years uh, as a keynote speaker, uh, just doing conferences and, and and speaking at conferences. And, you know, when March sort of came around, everything evaporated and had a few conferences convert to virtual, but for the most part, everything was either canceled or postponed or, you know, it, it just turned my world upside down. You watch you know, well into six figures of revenue just disappear. And all the while I'm supposed to be promoting a book launch. <laughs> so, you know, you, you sort of uh, poured salt in the wound there, but I've been able to, you know, sort of shift and refocus on the virtual side by investing into some technology and just the sort of art of presenting virtually. And it's turned out pretty pretty well. I think it's actually something I'll be able to move forward with when we get back to doing live conferences. This will be a nice add-on to be able to do a second or third follow-up session virtually. That's very cool. And it, it's the same with us. I mean, the two of us also run a well-being company where we would go in on site to places and, and run programs and workshops. And it's all very hands-on and interactive. And we had to pivot massively as well as a business now, on your website, and when we look you up, you, you talk a lot about kind of powerful virtual keynotes. So, so what have you, you don't have to tell us all the secret yeah. sauce, 
But um, we'll we'll write it down though. But, um, <laughs> I, I suppose what are the things that you find have worked well for you? Well, I think the number one sort of mistake that people make when they try to transfer things into the virtual world is you can't do the same presentation that you do live virtually. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And so, you know, I had to revamp sort of the entire presentation for this platform and this type of delivery. So if I'm on stage in front of a few thousand people, you know, my job is to edutain, right? It's sort of to inspire. I want people walking out of that giant conference hall like they just saw Rocky for the first time, sort of feeling like they can, you know, they're invincible, they can overcome the world. But when it's virtual, it's really hard to generate that level of excitement. And so you have to shift because it's a much more intimate platform. And in most cases, you know, you're you're less than two feet away from from a, a camera in your face and you're having basically a one-on-one conversation with whomever's on the other end. And so because of that intimacy, your ability to drive behavior change is incredibly amplified in the virtual world as opposed to being on a stage where they might have to look at a giant screen even just to see your face. And so it's been a real learning experience for me and and sort of adapting my content towards behavior change and not that inspiration motivation thing that might happen in a larger venue. With that revamp and change, what has been the most positive aspect that you've found that you've really felt that over the past few months has gone well for you? Well, I mean, to be honest, being able to hold my fee structure, uh, you know, as soon as the world went digital, everybody all of a sudden decided you were worth half of what they were paying you live. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I was just ready to call BS on right from the very beginning because I'm sitting here going, wait a minute, you know, let's look at your AV budget that you are now saving on from not doing this giant conference and understand that I'm now the lighting guy and I'm now the sound guy and I'm now the technician and I'm now the talent. And I, and I've, you know, I've added eight jobs to my plate and I could make an argument that you should pay me three times what I get paid in a live environment because I'm doing more jobs. And so, uh, you know, because of the quality, because, you know, I basically built a three camera uh, studio in my office that allows me with some bells and whistles to produce more of what looks like a late night talk show as opposed to a talking head over a PowerPoint deck. Um, People have been willing to actually uh, pay me what I believe I'm worth in that environment. So it's been good in that sense. And Brent, what would be, obviously we have a little bit of an idea because we've looked into you, but for people that might know that much about you just yet, what would be the main topics or your, I suppose your go-tos that you would speak about? I speak mostly on core values and purpose. Those are sort of my two vertical lanes uh, that that companies hire me to come in and talk to them about. Very good. And you know, when we obviously see a lot online where you're saying find your purpose. And so it's a big question we both have here is when did you kind of figure out that you knew what your purpose was and that you were really digging into that then for the long term? It's a couple of years ago for me uh, when I realized finally that I've been lied to for 40 plus years of my life because purpose isn't something we find. Uh, purpose is something you choose. 
And so it took me a minute to figure out the process of how to go about choosing a purpose. And what I discovered is that you can't start with why. You can't start with your purpose. You have to start with what. What are those non-negotiables? I call those your your black sheep values. What uh, you know, I was I was forty seven years old, I think, when I finally was told why farmers don't value black sheep like the rest of the flock, and the the reason blew me away. I had no idea. I have no idea how I, la- you know, I survived 47 years without somebody explaining to me the real reason why farmers don't value black sheep, but it's because a black sheep's wool cannot be dyed. So every black sheep is a hundred percent authentically original. That is my life's goal is to be the hundred percent authentically original creation I was made to be. And so I heard that and I was like, gosh, you know what? We all possess these these values, these five or six deeply held personal core values that no matter how much somebody wants to try to twist or change you, they simply will not be changed, very similar to a black sheep's wool. And so when I discovered what those were, I was able to choose a purpose in alignment with the things that mattered most to me. I suppose what what perfect timing, you obviously said the fact that you didn't have so many live engagements in a space that might be difficult to publicize something that's coming out soon, but only a couple of days away, you are publishing a a book entitled Black Sheep. Do you want to just tell everyone, tell the community here a little bit about what that's all about? Absolutely. So a, a few years ago, when I was first sort of told this story of why black sheep aren't valued like the rest of the flock, I, I really dove deep into the science behind discovering these core values and understanding that they're developed over the course of our lifetimes. And they rarely change outside of like a catastrophic event in your life. They rarely change. And so what the book does is it teaches you how to identify what your, I call it a flock of five, what your five unchangeable personal core values are. It teaches you how to prove that they are real and indeed yours, because what we have discovered over the last few years is that many of us spend our time caring for other people's sheep. (laughs) They're not actually the things we care about. They're things that other people care about, or they tell us we should care about. And so you have to take a little bit of time to prove that they are indeed yours. And after you sort of come to that realization and you've proven and you have evidence that these are your black sheep values, then we teach you how to speak them into existence. The book actually helps you program them into your daily calendar, choosing when and where they appear for maximum impact in your life. And that's the main point of the book. Thanks very much for sharing that, Brent. What are Brandt's five core values that he tries to live through each day? So mine are creativity, hope, impact, empathy, family, and authenticity. I have an extra. I have a sixth. I've spent you know 20 years as a rock star in the music business prior to this, and so we do everything to excess. So I, I needed an extra. Uh, but those are my, my six black sheep values. And that kind of brings us on nicely to our next point, Brandt, which is Tell, tell everyone a little bit about Rockstar Impact and what that all looks really, that looks really neat, kind of the values-based leadership, that model you have. Yeah. What's that all about? Well, I, I basically started my music career late uh, for, for the Rockstar world anyways, for the music world. I didn't become a full-time musician until I was 30 years old and I'm 49 now. And it was just in the last few years that I stopped touring uh, full-time. And 
what I learned sort of over those almost two decades of of literally sort of being this rock star, two different bands, two different record deals, being able to travel all, all over the world and and play music for a living uh, was a couple of things. I learned how to collaborate really well uh, because there's many people involved with your success. It's not just up to you. Uh, I also learned to define those things that matter most to me so that I wouldn't be distracted by the hundreds of things that are sort of screaming out for my attention on a daily basis, which can make you exhausted and just either pull you to the future or push you back to the past. And, and you know, the only place you can make a difference is in the present. And so in order to, to stay in the present, you have to have these things defined in your life. And so what I've been able to do with, with Rockstar Impact is partner with a bunch of, of organizations. I mean, some of the world's most admired companies and sort of come in and teach people how to discover what matters most to them in order for them to build bridges to what matter most to their organizations. So every organization has the, you know, they have their published, here are our organizational core values and they're on their website and they, they sound great. But my question is, how do people experience them? How do people engage them or activate them? And that answer is basically born from yours. You have to figure out what matters most to you in order to know how to engage with what matters most to the organization. And so I teach people how to sort of build those bridges between the two. With the organizations that you've worked with, we were extremely impressed with the list of names, Netflix and ESPN, Microsoft, Sony, to name a few. Which one has been maybe the most impactful on you that you've felt, wow, they really have arranged their company structure to be true to their core values and their culture? Well, I, I have a soft spot uh, for the healthcare industry, uh, just sort of my history with my my son being a cancer survivor. So for me, uh, being able to work with St. Jude uh, Children's Research Hospital was sort of a, a a crown jewel in my client list of just being able to help them uh, with their collaborative efforts and understanding sort of what matters most. They, there's no question that they are aligned around their purpose at that organization and the in the sort of fight they have against pediatric cancer. But um, that to me was such a powerful experience to be there. You you know in in this country, St. Jude is sort of this you you imagine it's this massive, massive hospital because they do such amazing work. But in reality, they have like 75 beds in their hospital. It is a tiny hospital. But the way that they treat four or 5,000 patients a year is because they have these villages attached to the hospital where people come in for outpatient treatment every single day and go back to the village that they're living in. And they're basically separated by length of stay. So if you're going to be there for 30 days, you're in this particular village. If you're going to be there for 90 days, you're in another village. And if you're going to be there for months on end, you sort of get moved to a different village. And so only the sickest of the sick children are actually in the hospital at any given time that, that stay there. And so for me to sort of see how that process works and from the you know the CEO and the C-suite level, all the way down to um, the people who are, are sort of the heart and soul and serving part of that organization, really blew me away. And Brent, you've you've obviously learned and, and taken in so much from o- over the years, just experientially, but also you've distilled so many probably impactful lessons and motivated so many other people through that journey. With what's going on in the world and with the changing dynamic in terms of 
health, healthcare, well-being, people understanding what's important to them, habits, behavioral change, all these things that you've, you've already alluded to. What do you think people are, are really going to learn and understand is important about themselves as we start to maybe face into a bit more of living with COVID a little bit longer, maybe leaning into even next year and moving forward? I'm going to give you the honest answer, which you probably might not like very much, but, but the, the truth is, in my opinion, that most people won't change a thing because people don't like to hold themselves accountable to anything. And they would much rather continue to wing it like they've been their entire lives rather than define these things. Because when you define the things that matter most, what you're saying is that these are your guideposts, sort of the guardrails of your life, which which come with some accountability. So if you go outside or you do something that violates these things that matter most, you're telling your brain that it's unacceptable and you're going to have to do something to change. And most people don't want to do that. So unfortunately, I feel like most people will just continue to wing it and and they won't see uh, that sort of high performance, that that ultimate fulfillment that their life really can offer them because they simply choose not to do the work. And it's it's sad on one end. Um you know, I know that a fraction of a fraction of 1% of the people can actually tell me what are your five non-negotiable values? Give me your life's purpose. What is your purpose statement in one succinct sentence? They simply can't do it. They think being intentional is enough and that's never enough to get it done. You have to act with deliberate intention. And the only way to do that is to define these things that matter most. And so for those of us, that decide we're not going to wing it another day. We're going to actually do the work to figure out what our core values are. Well, it just is such a competitive advantage, no matter what you're doing in your life, that it's those people who see the most amount of success. That's excellent. Like me and David, before people head out now to get your book, where could be a starting point for people to identify or start on the path of understanding their core values? That's a great question. Uh, I'm going to give you two ways that you can do it. Uh, The easiest way is to, I've built an online assessment to sort of help people take that first little step, dip their toe into the values pool, if you will. Um, And that's at findyourblacksheep.com. There's a, a link that you can click on that says find your flock. And so what that assessment does is it sort of presents you with 125 commonly held personal core values. And the first thing it asks you to do is to just read these really quickly and then sort of this knee-jerk reaction, give me any word that really resonates with you. So if you read it and you go, gosh, I like that word, go ahead and select it. And what we have discovered over the last couple of years of doing this is that the average person selects at least 30 words. And so my first response is always, tell me what crippling anxiety and depression feel like because you've set yourself up to fail. (laughs) 30 things that you're saying are super important to you in your life. There is no way you're going to be able to honor all of those things on a daily basis. You might honor 29 of 30, but if you're like me, that one thing that simply slipped through the cracks ends up preventing you from feeling any sort of fulfillment or success because we have this expectation of perfection. And so what happens next is you take like this subset. So if you selected 30 words, now you're going to work with that 30 and you're going to group them together 
based on sort of likeness or theme. So words like sympathy and empathy would be in one bucket and another bucket would have words like success and achievement and and those sorts of things. And so when you're done grouping all these together, you have five different buckets worth of similar words and you get to pick one word. What is the one word you cannot live without? And that sort of leads you to your introductory flock of five. Now, what I know for a fact is that I've never worked with a single person in two years whose initial flock of five is what they ended up with five weeks later when we finished the training. So we know that even though you think these are real, we know for a fact that it, they indeed are not. What, what we find with high performers, people that we speak to on this podcast, is that like everyone, they suffer adversity, setbacks, obstacles, challenges, and and so many things like that, be it professionally or, or personally. And um, what they manage to do is obviously learn lessons and, and move on and move forward. So what do you personally do if you have come into face with something like that, an obstacle or, or something you weren't quite expecting? So the, if anyone gets anything out of this interview, what I want them to hear is this, and especially for these high-performing athletes, as a, as a control freak, and I mean, I am one of the biggest control freaks you will ever meet. If you, if you invited me to dinner, boys, uh, I would drive your car. Like that is literally <laughs> the level of control that, that I need in my life to feel comfortable. And so knowing that the, the thing that was hardest for me to accept, and it's the thing that's hardest for these high-performing athletes to accept is this, you don't control outcomes. You are not in control of outcomes. You are only in control of the deliberate intention that goes into making decisions. That was really hard for me to accept as a control freak, but the science doesn't support that. It's called, uh, it's called outcome bias when you are justifying whether you've made a good decision or a bad decision based on an outcome. Um, the truth is we don't control outcomes. We don't have that type of power. So instead, what we need to focus on is honoring those things that we say matter most to us. You know, my big question to these these super high performers is what keeps you committed to the goals that you want to achieve? And if you can't tell me what those black sheep values are, then what you're telling me is what keeps you committed is your feelings or emotions or hopes or dreams or something that they have zero control over. And they have to refocus and say, no, I'm going to define these things because it's these things that actually keep me committed to achieving the things that I want to achieve. Even though I can't control the ultimate outcome, I can control the effort that goes in to giving me the best opportunity to achieve those things. Excellent. You mentioned being a competitive athlete and also a rock star in your time. If you could meet yourself again, maybe... 10 years younger version of yourself and you're standing in front of them. What advice would you give to a younger brand? It's to discover these things as soon. If I would have known my non-negotiables when I was 20 years old, uh, I, I truly believe that where I'm at in my career would look completely different right now because I didn't figure this stuff out until I was 
probably 40, 44, 45 years old. And so I look now at this sort of younger generation, whether it's it's millennials or even going back, you know, my kids are, are 19 and, and 23 years old, uh, that, that Gen Z population. And I go, gosh, if you guys could figure this stuff out now, you'd save yourselves from so many poor decisions that, <laughs> that the next 20 years of your life will include because you can actually make good decisions based on these things that matter most to you. And, and that to me would, would be exactly what I'd tell myself 10 years, 15, even 20 years ago. And what I find interesting about that is, but is it, is it not the journey you've gone through all those mistakes and all those errors of judgment and those things that didn't quite go to plan that made you the person you are today so that you can look back and say, you know what? I did well. It didn't all go to plan, but I, I always find it interesting when we ask that question of, of lists of guests, but even of ourselves. You know, if we could back to the future, if we could go back twenty years, would we? What would we say? But but that might have changed our trajectory so much, and and the mistakes we've made nearly makes the person. So, so I want to just hear your point on that. I've never really asked anyone that kind of question to flip it. Sure. So what I believe is this, is that, you know, these, these things that we value most by the time we're 20 years old are already established. Like they they already exist. We just haven't discovered them yet. We haven't sort of peeled the onion back to get to that center that, that we know this is what's truth for us. And so while yes, all the experiences that I've gone through have helped mold and shape me, um, what I'm going to tell you is I would have still made mistakes. I would have still had these opportunities where even though I'm making a decision, what I call on purpose, meaning in in alignment with your purpose, um, because I don't control outcomes, I still would have experienced a lot of loss, a lot of failure, a lot of those things that um, I have now. But the difference would be rather than winging it and not really understanding why I failed, it gives me these breadcrumbs to trace back to the different things that I that I did either intentionally or unintentionally because I have these markers defined in my life to say, up, oh, you know what? That right there, it's it's creativity that was the reason that I experienced that fel- that failure. I wasn't pushing the boundaries of creativity, and so I know that that's what I can point at to go. I, in the future, I need to be more creative. I have to have the courage to be more creative in that moment, um, as opposed to going, well, I have no idea what happened and, and it took me 20 years to, to figure it out because I screwed up so much that eventually I had to say, gosh, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I want to be able to fix what's broke. And, uh, and, and that is sort of the difference, I think, of defining it early as opposed to winging it as long as, as I have. It's obviously something that you bring into your space that makes you a little bit different and gives you a flourish and obviously a nice USP that how do you kind of marry musical experience and talent that you've had probably forever and also delivering such, I suppose, inspiring content at the same time? So the music experience for me in spending as long as I did in in the music business and especially as sort of as a a front man, as as a lead singer of a band you know, you have to have a certain amount of swagger to pull that off (laughs) and not want to beat yourself up every night. Sorry, Um, sorry, Dave. (laughs) You know, that confidence that comes 
uh, from doing that night after night. And, and, you know, the ability to use music, uh, you know, music is that, that universal language. So it's one of the only things I know that can get people emotional without words. And so, you know, it's, it's a scenario that, um, being able to marry those two just allows your head and your heart to connect. And when your head and your heart connect, it creates these incredibly memorable experiences. And so, you know, if you are going to venture out into that world, what I need to tell you is you got to have enough swagger that people believe you. And if you show up and you're a little nervous or you're a little shy and you're not presenting it with authority, um, the first response that people are having is, why would I believe a word coming out of that guy's mouth? He doesn't even look like he knows what he's talking about. As opposed to coming out, you know, you don't want to be an arrogant a-hole, but you want to come out a little bit like, Hey, you know, I'm an expert. You're paying me a bunch of money to be here. So how about you sit there and listen to what I have to say? (laughs) Everybody's happy, you know, and that to me is you can do it with a smile on your face. Um, but really with some authority so that people actually, you know, they want to know that you're going to give them something that might help them in their lives. And so that you got to have a little bit of swagger to pull that off on a regular basis. What do you do to reassure yourself when you step outside your comfort zone? You've gone from being an athlete into being into music, into being a keynote speaker and delivering on all fronts. There must be times when you feel a little bit outside your depth. Is there anything you do to push yourself on when you feel like maybe I've stepped too far outside my comfort zone here? Yes. it For me, it's it's the studying. It's the stuff that goes on beyond, uh, sort of behind the curtain, right? Um, you have to be a subject matter expert. So for me, whether that's when I was, you know, a competitive athlete playing, playing, you know, I was a four sport athlete in high school, all state and a couple of sports. And, you know, it it was the work, it was the foundational work that I would put in to know that I was doing the work that needed to be done to be great at what I was doing. Um, No one was going to outwork me uh, so that when it came time to perform, I could focus solely on the performing and not on the mechanics of what I was trying to do. As I sort of moved into the music, it's the same thing. You have to own your instrument. You have to be comfortable enough that you're not staring at your fingers or not knowing where to play, or you have to own it enough so that you're not thinking about the mechanics of playing an instrument. You're thinking about the performance that people are watching. And as we move into the keynote space, it's the same thing. I have to own the science behind what I am teaching people now, because trust me, at every event, when I'm finished, somebody with, you know, uh, eight degrees and, and, uh, Coke bottle glasses come up to me afterwards and say, can I talk to you about, you know, (laughs) the the, the science behind what you're teaching? Are you using the, you know, the quadrillion theorem? And, you know, I have to know the science so that when I'm presenting, I can present with authority and I don't care if you have a Harvard degree or you're the janitor, I could have a conversation with you and know that what I'm telling you is the truth. Sorry, we were, we were laughing a little bit there, Brent. Um, <laughs> Brent, look, you've like what Kieran just said, you've excelled in a lot of different areas, right? You're a high performer, hence you being on the show. Is, is there an area of improvement you see over the next couple of years that something you're, you're really focusing in on with intention that you want to get better at? Uh, absolutely. It, it's systems. Um, I have a really good 
friend. Her name is Neen James. She's a, an Australian who teaches sort of this systems-based thinking. And that to me is really probably the weakest part of my game. You know, Put me on stage, give me a microphone, and I'm good to go. But what about the systems that have to be in place to cultivate the people that are listening, to build an audience, to build a brand? What does that look like? Um, you can't wing it in those in those areas and expect um, that you're going to see any sort of real growth. And so it's it's the hard part of what I'm doing right now, which Black Sheep being the book, but Black Sheep is really going to be a brand that sort of says to people, define the things that matter most to you. You know, we have a, I have an apparel brand that is coming along this, the Black Sheep apparel brand where you'll have hats and you'll have shoes and and journals and watches and all these sorts of things as a reminder to say, define those things that matter most and lead with those Black Sheep values so that people can see what makes you truly authentic. And so that that sort of whole plan of marketing and making sure that people understand that black sheep is a is a a mindset it's a movement more than just a book that doesn't happen without these systems in place to support the growth that might happen organically from people reading the book brilliant in terms of what you're trying to do you're trying to inspire loads of people with black sheep with your talks with your what you've done with your career who's inspired you most in your career Oh gosh, you know, um, it's different people for different things, I think. So, you know, I, I grew up in an incredibly supportive family, uh, with my mom and dad and have always felt that, uh, I, I grew up in a baseball family. Uh, my dad is a, a very well-known pitching coach, uh, up in new England and in, in New Hampshire. And so, you know, I, I sort of looked up to, to him and my mom, both, uh, for for the support that they gave me, but you know, even beyond that, some of the professional athletes that I've admired, uh, you know, for me, I grew up sort of worshiping uh, this guy named Mike Flanagan, who was a pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles that won the Cy Young Award uh, back in 1979, and my dad was his high school baseball coach. And he had this incredible amount of success and, you know, nobody out, outworked him on the field and it led to him playing professionally and, and having this incredible career. And so, you know, I really looked up to him and, and the efforts that, that he put in, you know, my dad would tell me he'd keep books every time he would go out to play and he would pitch an inning and he'd come in after the inning and in his book, he would write down every pitch he threw to every batter he faced so that the next time he faced him, he saw what worked and what didn't. Uh, that level of, of performance in high school is what made him untouchable. And so, you know, that sort of work ethic and the ability to go the extra mile is really what sort of drove me no matter what I was doing, uh, whether that was playing sports or, or playing music or now speaking, it's still that incredible competitiveness within me that says, every time I take the mound, I take the stage, whatever that is, um, I don't just want to win. I want to win so big that people are afraid to challenge me. <laughs> like that's, that is the level that I have. And that's what to me with these, with these uh, professional athletes, especially 
that's what made Tiger Woods so dominant for so many years is that it wasn't that he was that much better than everybody. I mean, he he was incredible, but he intimidated everyone. It was like, you don't even belong on this course with me and why are you here? Uh, and and it took years for for his colleagues to go, wait a minute. We were here before you, you know. <laughs> why? Why all of a sudden now? But but that sort of fear that he put into people um, is the same sort of what, how how I approach whatever it is that I'm doing. I want to be the best at what I do. Period, and that requires work. Brent, you've impacted a, a lot of a lot of different people, and you've you know Jude's Netflix. We this goes on and on and on, including the two of us here today, and everyone that's going to listen to this in the coming weeks. Looking forward now, casting an eye over yourself in the next 15 or 20 years, you're hopping back into that DeLorean for another journey. <laughs> what do you see your, your legacy being, looking back on, on your life's work and that painting you've painted? So, you know, my story, the, this book, this urge and sort of almost obsession with discovering what matters most was born out of a horrible experience with my oldest son uh, being diagnosed with this rare cancer. And the the 263 days that we lived in the hospital with him while he was battling. And I made so many horrible, horrible decisions because I didn't have these things defined in my life. And I was simply sort of functioning off of emotion in that time. And so what I hope the legacy is, is that, you know, people are compelled to define these things so that when the biggest storm of their life rolls in, that they're prepared, they're ready for it. And they don't make the same mistakes that I made over and over and over again. Uh, and they start to, to function and make decisions with deliberate intention, which no matter what the outcome is, allows them to sleep at night knowing that they did something that was in alignment with what matters most to them. And that's what's most important. And I couldn't say that during that time for me. So so fast forward 15, 20 years, what I hope is that there are a few million people who have defined these things who now simply refer to their core values as their black sheep. And, and they talk to people about how they feed those sheep on a daily basis. And, and that is just part of their life. We're privileged to say you're a listener of the show, so you'll know the next question that's coming at you. It's what does high performance mean to you, Brent? High performance to me means putting in the work and understanding that you never are going to reach that ultimate goal, period. Brent Menzor, we would just like to say thank you very much, Kiran and myself here. David, just really grateful for, for your time today. We've really, really enjoyed speaking to you. We've learned a lot. Um, and we're hoping just so many people get so much from this. We're both going to be buying your book. And you, I think you can count us in as two significant followers or fans into your movement, Black Sheep. So wishing all the best moving forward. Stay fit, stay healthy, look after yourself and your family. And thanks again. Can't thank both of you enough. I love what you do and what you're doing. Please continue to make that positive impact in the world. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.